Want to be confident when talking about yourself and explaining what you do? Join my free 21-day confidence building course. You'll learn how to construct a personal elevator pitch, learn how to not be awkward in social situations, how to have awesome conversations, among other important skills to help you crush life. Best of all, it's free. Sign up now at freeconfidencecourse.com. From the C Method, my name is Christina Cantors, and this is Stand Out, Get Noticed, the podcast that helps you communicate with confidence and clarity so you can get what you want in business and in life. To subscribe to the show and download the back catalogue, go to thecmethod.com slash podcast. Hello, it's Christina here, and I hope you've had a fabulous week so far. Don't you just love Wednesdays? I do, because every Wednesday morning, I go for breakfast with a group of amazing, talented, and beautiful entrepreneurs. Big shout out to Marita, Stace, Sarah, Hannah, and Kaz. You ladies rock, and I am just so humbled to have you as my friends. If you're self-employed and you're not regularly in touch with other like-minded and supportive people, go and find some and hang out with them. It makes a huge difference and I, I really, it really helps you keep a driven and positive mindset. So I meet up with those beautiful women every week and it's awesome. We just support each other. It's just so, so helpful. Okay. Enough gushing. I have a question for you. Have you ever made a bad decision in your life? And have you ever made bad decisions over and over again? Or maybe you sometimes find yourself struck with indecision. It could be as simple as, do I get the steak or the burger? Or or as big as, what the hell do I do with my life? I know, I've been there. When I was in high school, I had no idea what I wanted to be when, when I left. I was so indecisive I did a three-hour personality test that looked at my strengths, my skills, my way of thinking, my likes and dislikes, etc. And then the test told me which occupations would best suit me. You know what came out as number one? Architect. So you know what I did? I went and studied architecture, and then I became an architect. And then I realized that what I actually wanted was something different all along. So moral of the story? Always let a personality test make life decisions for you. (laughs) No, no, it's learn how to be better at making decisions, especially when the stakes are high. And my guest this week is going to show you how. I'm really excited to introduce you to Basil Nuridini. Basil is a lawyer and a business consultant. He's a master of pitching, negotiation, and of course, decision making. In fact, He's even written a book about it. It's called Less Risk, More Reward, The Essential Guide to Key Decision-Making. I'd never met a decision-making expert before, so I was very keen to learn more, especially seeing as I can be quite indecisive at the best of times. Keep listening if you want to learn how you can make more good decisions, fewer bad decisions, and what to do when you're overwhelmed with options. Show notes for this episode will be at thecmethod.com slash basil. All right, so without further ado, please welcome my guest this week, Mr. Basil Nuridini. As a decision-making expert, and I've not met anyone before who's an expert in decision-making, and I think it's something we can all learn 
to do better. But I know your background is in law and you've been running a very successful law practice for many years and you started your firm shortly after graduating from law school. My first question is one of the biggest decisions that school leavers face is actually what to study at uni and even whether to study at all. So firstly, I'd just love to hear from you. What actually made you decide to do law? Okay. Well, so it's, it's, the times are different and the circumstances are different for everyone at, at, at different stages of their lives. So what was relevant to me almost what, more than 25 years ago um, is not necessarily relevant to somebody now. But in each and every case, um, one needs to really look at all of the surrounding circumstances and the opportunities that present themselves. So in my particular case, I came from a working class background you know, we metaphorically lived out of rubbish bins, not not literally, but at times almost. <laughs> and, um, and uh, you know, I went to a government school uh, and at a school where um, there was very little interest in academic um, movement or achievement, if you like. And I just um, happened to be a little bit different from most of the other people at my school. And I wanted to grow out of and move out of that condition that I was in. And I saw law as a vehicle for that. So other people in your school, what? What made you different from everyone else? Well, I really don't know what made me different, but I was different. So, for example, in the, in, it's funny because um, I went to a relatively rough school in uh, Melbourne's western suburbs and uh, I ended up representing a number of my schoolmates as um, clients years <laughs> down the track. So, so it's, it's quite interesting. But, look, I was just different. Um, I wanted to I wanted to do something different. I didn't want to live the lifestyle of the people who – whom I lived in in and around, whose lifestyles I understood but didn't necessarily choose for myself. And so I made different choices. And one of those choices was to, um, you know, sort of roll up my sleeves and um, do lots of hard work and some some smart work but mainly hard work, get myself a degree and uh, perhaps move into a profession where I thought that I could do, do better for myself and for the world, uh, for my for my world, if you like, for for those concentric circles that uh, radiate from every individual, um, where the people that you touch. Mm. To to have that drive when you're in high school is amazing because I know that when I was in high school, I really had no idea what I wanted to do, and I actually found that decision making process really hard. And someone else actually made help me make the decision for me. <laughs> And it, and it very often happens like that, Christina, where you, and I've seen it happen very often in terms of, um, you know, in my professional life where I've seen people on the other side of the table, uh, looking at them and things have, typically when I see them, things have unraveled for them. And very often they're choosing based on what is, what, you know, what is, uh, the decision, if you like, of a dominant authority in their family or, or their circles. They're choosing to please others. Mm. Um, it's a recipe for really um, making yourself very un- unhappy, actually. Um, you really got to choose for yourself, recognising that you don't live, you know, on your own and you live with others as well, but you've got to choose for yourself ultimately. But we, we, we have no education, no training as to how to make those choices, no recognition as to the structure. So what we end up doing is we end up just falling into a default position. And the default position is, well, this is the way the flow is going, and I'm going to go with the flow. But what I've found with good decision makers is that almost always, not always, 
but almost always they're contrarians. They're actually going against the flow, not always against the flow, but against the flow when it's most um, beneficial for them to be going against the flow. Can you give an example of that? Well, you could do that in well, – in, my example is an example of that. Um, there I was in a school. There were a 1,000 children at that school, students at that high school. Out of those 1,000 students, um, you divide the, those numbers by six, you get an even distribution of about 170 students in every year level. But by the time I got to what is now year 12, in those days it was called Form 6, um, there were only 45 students at the school. At my at my year level, I beg, beg your pardon, which means that three quarters had gone with the flow and left school at 15, 16 or 17 because it, almost everyone else was doing it. Mm. Um, and so, um, but those who then chose, out of those who then chose to go against that particular flow within that mini universe of ours, um, four ended up, we didn't have a, a great pass rate at our school, four out of the 45 passed my, my year level. And I think three out of it, three of us ended up going to university, and those three all did very well. And um, so here we are, just going against what your universe is doing, because we're all, we we live in the world, of course, but we live in many universes within that world, and um, we're primarily governed by the things available to us, by the circumstances and the information available to us, and uh, and the influences around us that you're about to publish a book on the decision-making process. So I'd love to learn more about um, what that process is and share that with the listeners to help us all make better decisions in the future. But but first, before we dive into that, I'd just like to know what got you interested firstly in this topic of decision-making? Yes, that's a, that's a good question because really what happens with people like me in my profession is that we get to see the tail end of most many life situations where the rubble has just started to emerge or where things have unraveled in such a way that they're out of control and the people who come to see us um, simply can't manage them, them, themselves. And so what they end up doing is they go off to see a lawyer or some other advisor for, for advice in those circumstances. And so what I ended up doing is I found myself in a situation where, you know, I've represented over 1,500 people in court and just about every one of those 1,500 people ended up in court because of bad decisions. And over the last 20 years, I think I've learned just about every way that a human being can make a bad decision. So I figured that the time was right for me to use contrast primarily, but not just contrast, use some principles as well to write a book on how to make good decisions and how to write, how to make less bad decisions. Because my experience has been that if you're making sequentially good decisions, they compound, just like compounding interest, and they grow very quickly and they can compound into outstanding results. And uh, there's a process to it, basically. Okay. Can you take us through that process? Okay. Well, First thing to keep in mind is this, that, and, and this we were talking before about um, going be, becoming a contrarian. The moment you start to learn the process, you'll automatically become a contrarian and do what other people aren't doing. And the reason is that there, there are basically a number of steps involved in every decision. And 
as you go through those steps, there are these things inside our heads. Now, the psychologists call them biases and heuristics, shortcuts, if you like. I like to call them the usual suspects. And basically, I call them the usual suspects because they're those things, there are heaps of them, but I've, I've spoken in my book about, about seven of them, but there are many of them, but I've spoken about the most important ones. And those usual suspects, what they do is they intervene in your decision-making to cause you to make the wrong decision or to cause you to go down the wrong path in a particular way. And so what you end up doing is um, uh, you end up uh, missing targets. So one of those, for example, those usual suspects, is that we have a narrow spotlight. And so when we focus our attention on a problem at hand, we're really governed by, the psychologists call this the availability heuristic, but simply think of it as a, as a spotlight. We've got a spotlight with which we can see our problems and our options. And you can be almost certain that every time you're confronted with a decision, an either or decision, or a should I do something um, a decision, or any one of those types of decisions, you can be pretty certain that your spotlight is going to be too narrow. Now, there's not much we can do about that narrow spotlight in terms of our psychological makeup. That's just how we are. Sorry, Basil, do you, do you mean that we're only looking at, say, one or two alternatives? Is that what yes, you mean absolutely. by having a narrow spotlight? Okay. That's right. So we're just focusing in on just those one or two alternatives or three alternatives or whatever it might be, but whatever number of alternatives we're looking at, whether they're positive or negative, whether they're dangers, if you like, whatever those alternatives are, we can be almost certain that there are too few. And so what we need to do is step back. So I'll give you an example of that. So let's say, for example, um, you're deciding to buy a, a new television, for example, and you go off to the TV store and um, they tell you this whiz-bang television, most of the TVs will do the job that you need done. You could buy for $1,000, let's say, but uh, in this particular case, there's a whiz-bang TV that's got so much better sound and all of these extra things, and you can buy that for $2,000 or $1,800 or some, some number like that. Now, if you're really into better sound, that extra $800 might not sound like much. And if you've got your, your, your narrow spotlight on, you'll find that you know, well, you might say, I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and spend the extra $800. But if you learn that you can actually widen your spotlight and look for alternatives, you'll find one of these things that'll pop up would be the idea of an opportunity cost. Now, the opportunity cost will say to you, what else could I do with that extra $800? And so widening your spotlight, looking now for an opportunity cost, you say, okay, with an extra $800, I could buy X number of videos, I could do this, I could do all of these different things, which would add to the quality of my life far more than that, sim that simply purported um, extra crisper sound, if you like, that you'd otherwise have had. So, and this is, this is just one example. There are thousands of examples we could run through, but it's just one example where you can just um, widen that spotlight, look at some additional alternatives, and in the course of looking at those alternatives, make a more informed decision, very often not the same decision you otherwise would have made. And to get to that point, is it helpful to ask other people to help us well, widen yes. the spotlight? 
Yeah, absolutely. It's helpful to ask other people, but the problem is that very often other people are governed by the same psychological mm. limitations that you are. And so rather than, um, and I'm not against the idea of asking other people, but you can always ask your other self. And the other self is simply, you can always pinch yourself and, um, and or give yourself a little bit of an anchor of some description where you say, okay, now I have a decision where I'm going to, in this case, in, in our example, it was to spend an extra $800 or to spend something extra on something which I ha attribute some value to. And so what you have to do is you have to ask, ask yourself, hang on, are there other alternatives? And so in the book, what I've done is I've highlighted a number of types of alternatives that you can ask yourself um, that are generic enough that you could do on in pretty much all situations, but specific enough to actually guide you in those sort of varied situations. And one of those um, alternatives is, is the opportunity cost. There are, there are many, of course. Okay. But you always have to, I think, you always have to position yourself in such a way where you say, okay, my intuitive reaction is, yes, I like it, but you've got to take that step back. You've got to slow down and say to yourself, okay, and just imagine this dark room with a spotlight on, and you've got a, like a minus spotlight, if you like, on your hat, and you know you're only illuminating a part of your world, and just recognise that I've, there's more to this world that, than what I'm illuminating, and what I have to do is I have to step back and look around, point my head in a different direction so I can see some other alternatives. It's like being aware of your blind spot. Yeah, being, it's, it's really critical that you're aware that you have it. We all have them. And it's just the way we're made up. It's our psychological makeup. So there's no way of avoiding the fact that we have blind spots. The fact that we're aware of them will very often be a trigger for us to slow down. We need to slow down and make that decision after contemplation, of the, after looking around for some, some alternatives, basically. Okay. So once we've widened our spotlight a bit and we're aware of the alternatives, what do we then do to make the right decision and not get overwhelmed by all the options? Well, that's the other problem, isn't it? You get too many options and all of a sudden you get paralysed and you end up doing nothing. Oh, so... I do this at a salad bar. I go there <laughs> and there's like a million options and I can't handle it. I just cannot yes. deal. I'm just yeah. like, just make me, just give me five options and I'll choose one. <laughs> Don't give me 20. Well... Well, that's interesting because, you know, the studies are very often showing that if you give somebody 20 options, you're going to get less sales. Mm. Uh, if you give them, you know, four or five options, you'll end up with, with more sales. And that's, that's what's happening in that situation. You're, you're, over, you're being overwhelmed with your choices, and now you can't really tell much difference. It's only going to be a marginal difference, and you can't really choose which margin to, to, to take. Um, I think what you do in those situations is this. You have to look at the outcome. So what are the consequences? So in your salad bar example, what are the consequences of getting it wrong? And frankly, chances are you, you, your alternatives are going to be between a really good salad and a pretty good salad perhaps, depending on the salad bar, yeah, I suppose. or but, food envy, but that's not really a big deal. <laughs> okay, but you can fix that next time. True. So if if there's um, a situation where the consequences aren't that great, and that's the wrap-up end, the other end of this decision-making process, is to always be looking at the consequences. I call it a payoff calculation, but basically it's the likelihood 
multiplied by the penalty or the price that you have to pay for that likelihood. Um, and so when you get that combination happening, you might find in your salad bar alternative that getting it wrong and choosing one salad over the other is, is not going to be a really painful consequence. Um, and it might very well be uh, that you're also exposing yourself to some good fortunes, to, to some surprises as well, by simply being a little bit daring in that situation. So, yep, let's, let's by, alter- by contrast, imagine a situation where the consequences are dire. You know, let's say like quitting your job and starting a business. Yes. So in a, in a quitting, your, okay. So in a quitting your job and starting your business, that may in fact not be the dire that I was talking about. But let's let's run with that one. A lot of people see that as pretty dire. Like that holds a that holds a lot of people back because they think that the consequences are, are huge if it doesn't work. Yes, and and they can be right. They can They might not be right as well. I'll tell you why. We always we're always looking for a safety net. And when you're an employee in any organisation, you feel that you're safe and you think you actually might be safer than the employer. But if you take a wider angle, widen your spotlight a little bit and look at all the alternatives, you'll find you're actually substantially less safe working for somebody than working for yourself. And I'll tell you why. When you're working for somebody, you're depending on two things to happen. One, the good grace of your employer to keep you working. And two, that the business that the employer is running survives. You need two conditions. The employer needs only one condition, that his or her employment operation survives, his or her business survives. On the other hand, when you're working for yourself, you only need one condition, that is that your your business survives or thrives or whatever the case is. You certainly don't need the good grace of your employer because that's you. Mm. And so in so many ways, Leaving is actually a safer option than, than working. Now, that might not necessarily be the case where you're working for some major organisation, but they go, they go under as well. Mm. Um, and though both of those factors are just completely out of your control. That's right. And at least you can control, and you're right there, Christine, because at least you control some of the things that are related to your business. You can't control all of those things, of course, um, but you can control more things when you're working for yourself then you can control when you're working for somebody else. You have that additional that additional problem of the good grace of your employer that you need to always manage. Mm. And so, um, yes, there are dangers and um, there are always dangers, but go back to that calculation that you do, uh, which is your likelihood of success, the probability of success, multiplied by the payoff. Now, if you take the example, and we'll just, we'll just confine it to money, but it's not about money. It, it can be about lifestyle and, and all of those other things that are important to us human beings, but just confine it to money. And let's say, for example, you're contemplating a choice between staying in a stable job, which is not necessarily comfortable or not necessarily great, but, you know, it gets you by. And in a sense, that's, that means you're really just doing time and alternatively, leaving that stable job, exposing yourself to some risk of downside, but potentially a substantial risk of upside. And let's confine it to money, but as I said, it could be lifestyle upside, it could be any one of a number of things. So in those circumstances, if you do your calculation and, and you say, well, you know, I've got a, right now I've got a 
a hundred percent likelihood of earning a hundred thousand dollars a year or fifty or whatever it is that your income uh, level might be. Um, so that's a an expected return of a hundred thousand dollars. But if I run my business, I have a let's say I have a thirty percent chance of being successful. Well, but if I'm successful, I might make a million dollars. So in those circumstances. 30% of a million is a $300,000 expected return. So what you're doing by being cautious in those circumstances is you're throwing away an expected return of $300,000 and hanging on to an expected return of $100,000. Now, that's a bad bet. Mm, it just requires that faith in yourself to make that leap. <laughs> well, 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 yes, and also... It requires a little bit of calculation as to how you're going to do it. So there are times when they're all or nothing decisions, but there are times when you can take that decision, Christina, and um, spread it over three or four alternatives. And so you might you might not necessarily quit your job and write a book, but you might be able to quit your job and then write a book and do a podcast and start doing seminars, for example, because even though you might not know which one of these three items we've chosen is going to be the one that provides you with a payoff, in terms of your expected return, you've got a high probability that one of those three at least will, and if one does, its payoff will be substantially greater than the cost of the two that you miss out on. Ah, okay. That makes sense. I so like the that. critical thing is to create a bit of a safety net where you expose yourself to, to upside and find a way to minimize the downside. And there are a number of ways to do that. And I've pointed a few things in my book as well in relation to how to do that. But just envisage it um, in, in this way. Let's say you've got four possible alternatives. You've got $100,000. And you've got two or two choices. One, you can put a hundred thousand dollar investment in some marketing in a thing which you think is going to be successful and will give you a payoff of, let's say it's a million dollars. But you know, you might be right and you might be wrong. And uh, even you could even assign a prob probability to it. You can just say it's a 70% probability that it's going to be successful. So expected return is going to be 700,000 minus your hundred thousand expenditure. Or you might have four possible alternatives of $25,000 each. The probability of each of those may be less, but the payoff may be much more because there's no competition in that field because no one's looking at it. You see, you're becoming a contrarian. And when no one's looking at it, the payoffs always change. The returns are always greater. So in those circumstances, you may very well be much better off splitting your bet into four and taking all four of them. Mm. Um, and uh, when you when you get the payoff, uh, that payoff for the one or two will be substantially greater than the others. And in fact, you're reducing your risk in the process. That's very good advice. And I hope that anyone listening to this can take that on and and not use their narrow uh, spotlight to inform those big decisions. Basil, I've got. I know we're like we're running out of time, so I've, but I have a couple of things I just really want to ask you in terms of. So every day we're making lots and lots of decisions and some of them, you know, some of them are not so important, like which salad do I have, what do I have for breakfast, and other and others might be uh, larger decisions. Um, I read somewhere that we have 
a certain capacity for decision making where there's only so much we can do. Our brains can only handle so much. Do you believe this to be true? And and does that mean that we should try to not get stressed about the small decisions to then help us make the best large decisions on the ones that matter? Yeah, absolutely, Christina. There is. We, we do get fatigued. There's no question about that. And so, for example, there are always two sides to these things, but let's take it from the point of view of you as the decision maker. When you're under stress, you've got stress-induced, it's called a stress-induced bias, basically, but when you're under stress, you're likely to give in to temptation. So, for example, a person who's under stress and is given an alternative between, you know, a salad and some chocolate cake is very likely to choose the chocolate cake because you're tired and your decision, your controls are, are, are disappearing. Um, and in those circumstances, you're likely to choose a default position, which is the easy position. So certainly stress-induced changes influence our decision-making and absolutely one of the best ways to avoid those stresses is firstly, to, firstly to, to get your sleep. You really need your sleep. Um, but apart from that is to just recognize that those inconsequential decisions, which salad to eat, whether we eat at bar 15 or bar 26 down the road tonight, and all of those things, they really don't matter. None of those things will move your life. The things that will move the dial in your life in such a way that they will promote your life, advance your life, put a smile on your face that lasts for, for a long time, those, those are, they're the big decisions. That's what you should be focusing on. And they come and go. And uh, what you should be doing is you should be spot, uh, sort of training that spotlight to be looking for those decisions and those opportunities because they're fleeting. And uh, very often what we do is we overanalyze, we overstress, and we miss those decisions. We actually just don't take them at all because we're not sure if we're going to get um, – we're not sure if we're going to be right. Um, and it really doesn't matter if you're right or wrong on a given occasion if you play the game right. If you play the game correctly, you'll recognize that you have multiple opportunities in the course of your life to take decisions with asymmetric payoffs, a payoff which is four or five or ten times to one. So in those circumstances, you don't have to be right all the time. You don't have to be right even half the time. All you have to do is be exposed to the situations where there are asymmetric um, payoffs. And, um, and that means focusing your attention on, on the big ones, uh, training your spotlight to recognize when the big, one, big ones are coming, and uh, just really not bothering about the small ones at all. They don't matter. I know, I remember reading Tim Ferriss in his book for our work week, he wrote about to help you make these big decisions, make all your little, like eliminate as many little decisions as possible. So for example, having a morning routine where you don't have to think about what you're having for breakfast, you know, what, how you're getting to work, that sort of thing. If you know, if you sort of have the same every day, that eliminates that decision that you have to make. So by the time you actually get to work or do the important stuff, that's already, you know, your brain's already fresh. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's a sensible course. Really, 
all of those inconsequential decisions, they just don't matter. Mm. By definition, they're inconsequential. So just do it. And if you do it and, and there's no payoff and there's no downside, yeah. it just doesn't matter whether you put your left sock on first or your right sock on first. Who cares? Yeah. Um, I think that's what – I think that our brain wants to do that too. That's why we like routine. Our brains like routine because it just means less effort for it. Is there anything else that you'd like to share that I haven't asked you about? Basil? Well, the, well, you know, there are so many things. That, well, just just <laughs> in, in, in terms of the overview of these things, we're all decision-making factories. And whatever we do, those decisions will accumulate and um, have relevance to what, what um, our lives turned out to, uh, to be. And so what I ask people to do is to simply pay a little bit more attention to decisions. The, the easy ones, the salad ones, I'm not interested in those. Pay a bit of attention to those decisions where people are asking you to do some, something, where you're in a sale, in, in a store and a salesman is asking you um, to, to, to make this purchase because the sound is crisper. Um, where, for example, the boss is um, telling you that it's got to be done this way because she thinks that's the only way it can be done. And that is influencing or affecting your life. In all of those circumstances, you have choices to make. And when you make those choices, recognize that there is a process you can go through and that process starts with expanding your choices. It's not limited to expanding your choices, but it starts with expanding your choices. I can bet London to a brick that whatever choices you're thinking of when you're making a decision, you've missed out on some. There are some alternatives. So step back, take a moment of time, and look for other choices. If that means speaking to somebody else, speak to somebody else, but speak to yourself as well and just say, I know I've missed something, I just don't know what it is yet. And in those circumstances, when you're confronted and you present yourself with more choices, chances are you're going to find a better way to do it. And then the wrap-up thing with all of these is to look at the outcome and the outcome will always govern, should always govern, which way you lean. So where the outcome is a potential windfall, in those circumstances, ask yourself the question, how often will I get to play this opportunity? If you can play the opportunity many times in the course of your life, you should do whatever you can to expose yourself to those opportunities because the cost of playing, even though we'll, we'll, you'll pay for that occasionally with your losses, the payoff for your gains will be so substantial that it'll cover the cost of playing so many times over. And then on the other side of it is where the payoff is catastrophic. That's a negative payoff, if you like. In those circumstances, that's where you batten down your hatches um, because if it's a catastrophic outcome, you don't want exposure. If you're Machiavellian, of course, and you want to sell that position to, an, to a counterparty, that's different. Let the counterparty have the exposure, you sell it to them, and let them expose themselves to a catastrophic outcome. That's a different story entirely. But, so, um, but in, in, in any case, what you're looking at, Christina, is find those opportunities where there are great payoffs and get lots of exposure and play them as often as possible. And um, batten down the hatches when you can see a catastrophic outcome. I like that. 
that definitely makes it a lot simpler to make those big decisions. Well, thank you so much, Basil, for joining me today. I really appreciate you giving your time. What's the name of your book and when can when is it available? The name of the book is Less Risk, More Reward. And the subtitle is The Essential Guide to Key Decision Making. I expect it'll be in about four weeks' time, but what I will do as a courtesy to your listeners to, to your listeners is I'll let you know of the release date as soon as I know so that um, uh, those listeners who are interested um, have the opportunity to um, read what I've, um, what I've produced for them. Perfect. And I'll put, I'll put a link in the show notes as well to, to the book and where you can uh, check it out. So, again, thanks so much, Basil. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Uh, taking the time to chat with you today. It's been my pleasure. Thanks, Christine. Big thanks again to Basil Nuradini for being my guest this week. If you're keen to grab a pre-sale copy of Basil's book, Less Risk, More Reward, The Essential Guide to Key Decision-Making, leave a comment in the show notes at thecmethod.com slash basil or you can email me at cc at thecmethod.com and we'll sort you out there. Okay, and that's a wrap on episode 24. If you haven't yet, remember to jump on the free confidence course at freeconfidencecourse.com. The feedback I've been getting has been awesome and I'm just so glad to be helping so many of you go out there and to, and be confident to introduce yourselves to other people and really be clear when explaining what you do. It really makes my day just hearing about how the course has helped you. So big thanks to everyone who has given me feedback. Alrighty, keep on being awesome, Rockstar, and I'll see you next Wednesday morning. My name's Christina Cantors, and this has been Stand Out, Get Noticed. 